The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. In studio with me now is a two-time winner of the Costa Book of the Year. He is one of Ireland's most respected literary figures, Sebastian Barry. Good morning. Good morning. Now, you never thought when you first put pen to paper before you even had a word processor that this description would someday apply to you. No, and it gives me an ex- extravag- extravagant degree of happiness to hear you say it. Because, no, <laughs> you wouldn't. I mean, when I was a young fellow in, you know, living in a Chambre de Bonne in Paris, uh, telling myself, you know, everything will be all right. Don't worry so much. If I could go back to him, you know, age twenty, who when I was twenty-two, and tell him, you know, you were right. Just keep going, bro. You'd be you know? lecturing in universities, and uh... it, it, they <laughs> they would mistakenly make you laureate for Irish fiction. Ah, uh, yeah, madness, but but beautiful madness. Now, the the uh, business of writing. I mean, it, it it is a bit of a lottery. You can be very talented, and never get an agent, never get a publisher. And, never well, just have a drawer full of great things you can you can be a highly respected writer and you know maybe one of the best of the writers in the land and actually virtually have no money at all and be published and all the rest of it there are writers who maybe spend six or seven years writing a book they might get ten thousand pounds for it or they might get 20 which doesn't yeah. divide up very well among the years they've spent and they they are virtually penniless which is a which, which is a message i tried to get across as laureate, when I was laureate, because, you know, people, as Kavanagh said, that people don't want writers to talk about money because they don't want to give them any. <laughs> now, your beginnings, uh, your your late mother, whom I knew well from her acting days yeah. in RT, yeah. um, she handed you a pencil and said, either write or draw. She did. Off you I, go. I mean, I was nine months old, so I don't know why she thought I'd <laughs> take heed of her, but I obviously did, yeah. yeah. You know, but she was a mysterious woman with mysterious powers, you know, white witch, Joan mm-hmm. O'Hara. Now, when you uh, left college, did the the notion of being a full-time writer uh, ever cross your mind as a possibility? Now, admittedly, you didn't have the lures of high-tech or pharma or any of those Uh, jobs uh, when you left college. Listen, Pat, in my generation, we'd heard of jobs. They seem to be in other countries other than our own. And most of the people I knew, say, at Trinity or at school in CUS, most of them went to England or America. Uh, There was nothing to do here. Um, I think I applied um, to Fred Hannes for a job. He didn't have a job for me. I applied to a um, a financial institution for a job and they wrote back to me and said, we're very charmed by your letter because you're the least qualified person ever to apply to us. Uh, And I'm I'm sorry we can't give you a job, although we love your letter. So I just thought, well, I I was living at Leeson Street, at the top of a house in Leeson Street, and I just started to write short stories. I get up in the morning. And by evening, I'd have a story and I just thought that was magical. So I kept yeah. doing that for the next 40 years. Yeah. People liked your writing, but the, the, it's they a big did. jump from people appreciating your writing. Well, like I say, you can have, you can have quite a lovely, you know, a, a sustaining atmosphere of, of, you know, praise what young writers live off, you know, as much as money, but absolutely no money. And there was one occasion in the early years when Revenue called me to their tribunal, there was a room with a dais with a judge and seven or eight lawyers sitting at a table and uh, they wanted to know why I hadn't made a tax return. And I said, well, the reason is, and 
I, the reason is I don't earn any money. And they, they said, what do you mean? You earn what, how much is no money for a writer? I said, well, no money is no money, actually. Because I think they thought I meant like 10,000 quid. Uh, and, and I, they the answer said, is well, zero. It's zero. I said, they said, well, you still have to make a tax return. All these guys lined up to tell me that. And I said, well, thank you very much. And I said, and I'll just go back and go on with my work, if you don't mind. So mm. that, that, I, I wonder, they, they had that bank been a bit more visionary and, and given you the job, the letters you would have written to the customers demanding that you, they repay their you, loans. I tell you, it would have been a blossoming business for them. <laughs> Little did they know. I was reading an interview that, that you gave about your earliest reading experience. I think it was to The Guardian. And uh, with your Saturday pocket money in Easton's in Dunleary, you bought mm. a puffin book, a story about a boy living in London in a cul-de-sac. And there was a poignant subplot about a mother who'd been a ballerina. You yeah. made a plea in that interview yeah. to try and identify the book. Yeah. Did anyone come yes, to you? Yes, they did. They did. What was the book? Songbird's Grove by Anne Barrett. And the interesting thing about memory is she wasn't a ballet dancer. She was a flamenco dancer. <laughs> uh, and yes, they did. That was, that was very, very magical. And, you know, the, the editor of Puffin Books was a woman called Kay Webb, uh, whom my, one of my agents knew well in her day. She, you know, she actually supplied the mythologies of our childhood with those yeah. books. And I do remember so well traipsing up to Aeson's in Dunleary and standing in front of the Puffins and, stri- and reaching in to get one of them. No lifesavers. Mm. Now, uh, the business of memory uh, and uh, our past is uh, right through this book Mm. and uh, how we interpret our own past, how we Mm -hmm. live with it, how we justify it. I'll read just a short sequence. Before he made detective, his beat had been all that part of the north side from the river to Mountjoy Square. He had loved the queer sense of citizenship to protect, but of course also sometimes to correct, to harass, to arrest his fellow Dubliners. The harmless Alwans with their wheeliers, the fiddlers and the flute players begging for coppers in the street, the tuneful crime of vagrancy, the tired tide of office workers in the evening coming into the street like shallow floodwaters seeping out to bus stops, taxi ranks, headed for a dozen, for 50 destinations. The hucksters and the pickpockets and the drunkards, the fancy women and the boys in their flashy shoes, the street traders, the strolling priests, the nuns in their headgear of many shapes, the middle-class ladies who had shopped in Arnott's, the lower sort of ladies who had shopped in Cleary's. <laughs> it's wonderful. Thank you. And I think I'll bring you on my book tour to be my reader. That's beautifully done. No, but it, it captures a, a Dublin that yeah. has really evaporated. It's, it's ex- our Dublin, actually, you and I. Um, yeah, and when I'm young enough to remember, it's funny when I hear the clank, that, that sound that the trams now make, I remember the tram tracks were still in O'Connell Street yeah. from the previous trams, you know. We, we are pretty ancient, but the, the nice thing about being so ancient is we now are the repositories of memories that just uh, seem new to yeah. the people you're, you're writing. But the for. extraordinary business of uh, those, those tram lines overhead, the electric power that mm. went to those trams, yeah. some of those lines were still there and the tracks were still yeah. there. So we ripped them up and then we have to do it all again. <laughs> I know, but that's a bit like literature, too. Because there's a lot of, you know, there's a book by Joseph Conrad called Victory. And I only realized the other night, you know, like the ending of this book, which I'd never discussed, of course, it is a kind of an echo of that oh. book. So that's a bit like ripping up the tram lines. Now, you could go out to Dorky on the tram. I mean, I might think yeah. of that. And the tram yard is still there to be refurbed and exactly regenerated. refilled with the noise of human activity. <laughs> now, Ed, tell me as much as you want to about mm. uh, your hero or anti-hero, perhaps, yeah. Tom Kettle. Well, I think a hero. And I think the... If, it, if there was a secret purpose in the book is to make it quite, quite clear why, why he is a hero and of his generation. But uh, I, um, I can't even discuss with you. I know, oh. I know, because it has that secret um, 
a different sort of secret. There's an unfolding narrative. Exactly, exactly. And it's something that unfolded for me as I was writing it, which made it a very exciting book to read. But the, the, the little seed of that is that, I, you know, I was a little boy in Queenstown Castle in the turret flat with my grandfather and my mother and my sister. And one day, you know, the way kids do, I was wandering around um, and it was a paradise for us. Uh, it was a beautiful nine months. It was like a strange pregnancy of happiness for us as kids, me and my sister. And I just looked in this door of this funny little bit of the castle, sort of new annex. And there was a geezer sitting in there on the wicker chair, middle of the room, looking out to sea. And, you know, you know, that view from from uh, Collymore Road out to the island is so beautiful. I mean, you could spend your whole life just looking at it, sort of a painter who never painted. Um, and there he is. And he, he was smoking a cigarillo, you know, like in the old um, um, ad for... What was it? Uh, oh, yeah. Hamlet cigars. Yeah, exactly. The guys in, you just see the smoke coming up. And he didn't turn around. Uh, he, and I didn't speak to him. I probably never saw him again. But somehow he has been, you know, a kind of beautiful rescuer to me because he's allowed me to talk about some of the things that have bothered me most as a human person in the world. And, and this, this man from your childhood became yeah. Tom Kettle in your book. So I called him Tom Kettle in homage to the, the Thomas the Kettle, Tom Kettle who, was, who gave me a title for the secret scripture in his beautiful poem to my daughter Betty, which ends, Know that we fools now with the foolish dead died not for king or crown or emperor, but for a dream born in a herdsman's shed and for the secret scripture of the poor. So I felt I owed him a lot. So I gave him, for giving me a title, so I gave him the name. Yeah. Now, there are uh, sub themes, uh, all of which are, uh, I suppose, uh, resonant of some of our shame in the 20th century. Well, it it, it just never stops. Um, Katrina Crow uh, launched the book last night beautifully in Hodges Figures, and she said, you, when you think this is over, you realize it's just beginning again with the recent incredible, radiant courage of the men who'd been to Black Rock uh, talking, taking courage from each other, you know, like soldiers in the trenches, and finally talking about the abuses of at least 74 priests in, in that. Yeah. Because so, that was, to borrow from Lord Denning, the appalling vista. It was unimaginable in this posh private school that I mean, this sort of stuff would be going on. You would on. think almost impossible. And yet there you have images of, you know, terrifying details of priests um, at the swimming pool and the sense of predatory priests up on the sports grounds hunting you down. I mean, truly, truly, genuinely terrifying criminality. And to my mind, and part of the purpose of the book is to make it quite clear, you know, what we're talking about. That phrase child abuse is terrifying in itself, but it's also a little bit, bit of cotton wool. because It's sanitised. It, it, it is, because what you're really talking about is attempted murder and in some of a child and in some sometimes an actual murder because you know in real life if you assault somebody and they die many years later from as a consequence of the assault you're then guilty of murder and this is this is the same thing for me vis-a-vis -vis these activities because you 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 destroy you you incinerate the path which those that child was going to tread as he, as a living um, human being in in their lives, you you take them away from that. You you force them to try and just uh, salvage some happiness from this from this devastation. Uh, I I used to see accounts, you know, where priests would be saying I I've read accounts of priests saying, well, you know, children forget and it wasn't important, and we're we you know the flesh is weak, but the 
nonsense. You, you know, you were utter total criminals. And of course, the judiciary w- w- was was the instrument sending the kids into the and when we were talking about industrial schools yeah. and homes, they were sending them into these hell hellscapes. No, no one, no one is exempt from the guilt. But what we can do is somehow now, as this curiously grown up country at last, uh, open our hearts to this. You know, there are details in the book that are hard to read. But the reason for that is, I thought, these are our best citizens who have carried these images in their minds all their lives. If we can put them also into our imaginations and memories, it would be an act of total solidarity to them. Because they're, they're the people the statues should be put up to, the survivors of this. It is a wonderful book, Thank about you. which I can tell our listeners no more. Yes. Yes, <laughs> they the must, they must buy the book uh, to, to see the plot unfold. It's called Old God's Time. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk. It's published by Faber. Its author is Sebastian Barry. Sebastian, thank you very much for joining us it's on the programme. It's my joy once again. to talk to you again.